0: So we've had a, a couple of weeks in this. And so the first week we looked at what it was to be a strategic church, kind of evaluating that. What does that look like for us as a body? What does that look like for us as individual members? Last week we, we rolled in, it was this understanding as we kind of began to develop it, of how is a church comprised? How is it put together? And, and, and does it really matter how these things go? And what is the pattern of existence and organization that we see there uh, within scripture? And, and today what we're going to look at is, uh, are the two ordinances given to the local church, and so it's going to be baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, this could be dangerous, right? Most uh, Baptists, if you give them an opportunity to talk about baptism, you just can't shut them up, and they just run on and on and on. We know there's a Cowboys game, and, and you guys didn't pack a lunch, and so we're going to try and keep that in its box of time. Okay, that's my, that's my uh, loose promise to you. But you, you ask the question, well, look, we, we've already settled the issue of baptism, What's the big deal? Why do we need to talk about it? Why are we going to roll these things out? Why are we going to talk about the Lord's Supper? Well, I, I would submit to you that, that if you were to enter into a number of different conversations with people in our community, and to walk up to them in an attempt to share the gospel and have conversation with them about the gospel and what they believe, that your experience, maybe 90% of the time, is going to trail what I'm about to describe, You're going to walk up, you're going to have a conversation with them, you're going to ask them basically at some point, are are you a Christian? And what they're going to communicate to you is yes, on the basis of I've been baptized. Now, they're not going to explain the gospel, they're not going to talk about Jesus. What they're going to describe is an event that transpired at one point in their life. And what's troubling about that is uh, any number of these conversations, if you begin to press and kind of say, well, why were you baptized? What does that mean? What would you say about Jesus? Well, why? But I was baptized, my grandmother, you know, she's a good Christian and she gave me her Bible and I have it near the bedside and as if grandma's Bible is creating this like umbrella of salvation around them at night. I hope they don't lose it. That could be deadly for them. And so say you're depressed them a little bit more and you say, well, what can you tell me about the Lord's Supper? They're like, oh, sometimes when you go to church, they give you really bad snacks. Amen. That's those are actual real conversations that I have with people. Those are actual real conversations with people that have such a poor understanding of what baptism is that when they talk about their salvation, they point to their baptism as if baptism. They believe that baptism is this thing that has saved them. Baptism, according to John Hammett, he describes baptism as an act of commitment. Say you go to a wedding, right? Right? At that wedding, nobody at the wedding is believing that the the wedding itself is creating the love between the the husband and his soon-to-be bride, right? Nobody there is thinking, this is so great. I'm so glad we were able to get Matt and Valerie up there. We wanted them to love each other. Now we've got them in this wedding, and at the end of this ceremony, they're going to love one another. No, the wedding testifies to the love that's already there. It is a public demonstration, a commitment in front of all those gathered, testifying to the love that we already have for one another. In the same sense, baptism is this one-time act of commitment. It's a one-time visible display of an inward commitment with ongoing implications of our union with Christ. Let's look at some of these issues that roll out in our description and study of Baptism. One of the things we want to know is is that baptism follows salvation. It follows salvation as the first act of obedience. If you were to flip over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 gives us the report of of Peter's, Peter's interactions with a centurion by the name of Cornelius. And so the centurion has a vision, he sends for Peter, Peter goes and sees him and has this conversation with him and begins to describe the gospel starting in verse 34 of chapter 10. He opened his mouth and said, and then he begins to lay out the gospel. With God there is no partiality, in him you must be saved. That in salvation that salvation might be had in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 43 it says to him all the prophets bear witness speaking of Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter's laid out this wonderful proclamation of the gospel to Cornelius and to his household. And while Peter was still saying these words the holy spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among them, the circumcised uh, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles, for they were hearing him speaking in tongues and extolling God. So they're praising the Lord. And then Peter declares, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we Peter asks this question because these are Gentiles who are giving evidence of having come to faith as a result of having heard the word and responded to the word. And so Peter says, look, is there any reason why we shouldn't just rush these guys into the water? Is there any reason why they should not be baptized? But what precedes baptism? Salvation. 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 That they heard and responded to the word of the Lord. So Peter gives this command in 1048. He says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him there to remain someday. So Peter doesn't run in and say, Hey, look, Cornelius, your house is a mess. We're working out this whole what can you eat, what can't you eat thing. But I, I just know the great fix for it. I happen to know where some water is. Let's get everybody in and run them all through, and then everybody will be set. No, he, he labors, he communicates the gospel, he invites them to respond to the gospel, and on the basis of their positive response, then he turns and leads them into this first act of obedience. I mean, it should be that thing which logically follows, chronologically follows salvation. But so often in our community, we hear of people who they have some inclination towards God. And so they have rushed into the baptismal waters to solidify that and to strengthen that decision. No, it testifies to the decision. It doesn't strengthen it. It doesn't save you. It's on the basis of having made that decision. But baptism itself does not save. Well, of course, we can look to the New Testament and discover that this is true. Think of the thief on the cross in terms of baptism's necessity for salvation. This guy, according to uh, Luke 23, 39-43, is, is hanging up there on the cross with Jesus. The other thief turns and he's, he's just blasting Jesus, talking about what a horrible person he is. And this guy's response leads Jesus to say, Today you will be with me in paradise. No, Jesus, as he's hanging on the cross, doesn't say to the Romans down below, hey, look, uh, this good fellow up here has made a wonderful communication of the gospel. I'd like him to join me in paradise. If it's not too much, could we get him down so that he might be baptized? No, some Baptists would say that that's what should have happened, right? But that's an overcommunication and just completely misunderstanding and misalignment of the gospel. This man, who had no opportunity to be baptized, gave a good confession of faith and is given the promise that he might join with Jesus in heaven. So baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is the prescription that we are come to faith and then we are baptized. Paul gives us this this really wonderful communication in Ephesians 2, 9 that just kind of solidifies in our mind whether it be baptism or good works or some other thing. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Paul writes to this Ephesian church, and he says, Look, there are those of you who think that you're a very good person, and you are. You think you've done a number of good deeds and you have. You think the people in your community are impressed with you and they are. But I hear today write and tell you, communicate to you that you have been saved by grace through faith. It's the movement of God's grace on the shed blood of Jesus that extends to wayward sinners people lost, enmeshed, and admired in sin, completely given to my own directions. That is where our God has found us, right? Not moving in the right direction, but running away from him as fast as we can. He arrests us in our steps and visits his grace upon us. For by grace you have been saved through faith in the Lord Jesus. He has given to us salvation. Paul wants this point to be so incredibly clear that to the church in Corinth, who is just really caught up under the idea that it, is, that it is vitally important who they were baptized by. Oh, I'm baptized by Paul or Cephas or Apollos. Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, if if baptism leads to salvation, if it saves you, that would not Paul there be disingenuous to the gospel? Would not he be betraying the gospel of Jesus Christ? In essence, if baptism is this thing that saves you, and Paul writes and says, look, I didn't come to Corinth to baptize, wouldn't it lead them saying, D- did you want us just to be lost forever in our sin? Didn't, would you, you, just, you just don't care about us, Paul, but Paul wants them to correctly understand that although baptism is important, it necessarily follows chronologically and logically salvation. He says, he did not send me there to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Baptism does not save. And we can have these wonderfully clarifying conversations with people about the gospel. When you're talking to them, you're talking to your coworkers, you're talking to your children, you're talking to your grandmother, you're talking to your parents about your siblings, and and they say, you know, so-and-so is just, they're living a wild life, but I know that they were baptized. I mean, it should break our hearts that they're resting their hope and trust on this person's eternal state on the basis of some outward action that they have done instead of the inward movement of God. I, I mean, baptism is so incredibly important, but don't put your, your trust and faith in baptism. Put your trust and faith in God, amen? It is God that changes hearts, not us getting wet in front of others. Follow salvation, it doesn't say, but listen to this. It indicates the church's belief in the salvation of the one being baptized. And this is so incredibly important. So incredibly important. That when we bring somebody up and we're standing there in the baptismal waters, what this says when we're baptizing them is that we as a church body look up there and we say, We know or we trust that Jesus has done a work in their hearts. We trust that He's done a work in their hearts. We give a hearty amen. Jesus uh, writing, or Jesus speaking, and it's recorded in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, says that what the church gives testimony to, and he uses this binding and loosing language, what they're giving testimony to is a heavenly reality, and they're declaring it here in the earthly realm. They're declaring it where we can see. And so whenever somebody comes forward and they receive baptism, this is us here and now saying, yes, we confer, yes, we believe this person to be a Christian. Right? We believe this person to be a Christian. This is why baptism is a one-time event. So it's not that, you know, Ken comes to faith, and we say, yes, we, we think Ken is a Christian, and he's baptized, and then Ken goes out, and, oh, you just know him, and so he lives this kind of riotous, ruckus life, and then we say, what we need to do is just get him up there again. If we get him up there again, we're just, we're just laying this down, so we get him up there again. He's like, well, I don't know. We're like, skapooch, bubble, bubble, bubble. We'll bring him up. He's like, wow, Hallelujah. Amen. And he's just ready to live his life. And then, of course, we know Ken, and so he's back there to backsliding and he's off again and he's just riotous life. He spends a lot of time in Dallas. I don't know if you know that, but he does. And so, what he needs is deeper water. Now, we laugh and we say that's ridiculous, but in reality, this is how many of us live out our lives recommitment after recommitment after recommitment. When he saves you, he saves you finally, eternally forever. Baptism testifies to that fact. It testifies to that fact. It testifies that we believe that that's true. Paul says that in Romans 6, baptism testifies to the glorious nature of the gospel. In Romans 6, in Romans 6 verses 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He says, those of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus, we have union with Jesus. We are immersed. We are in there with his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. So in baptism and baptism by immersion, this is why it wonderfully figures, displays, and shows the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have the person there, and we're standing there with them, and we say, you've been buried in the likeness of Christ's death, and they go down under the water, just like Christ was lowered down into the grave. And when they're raised up out of the water, it depicts Christ's glorious resurrection from the dead. And the text says, and they're raised to newness of life. And so you are depicting the gospel. You're proclaiming the gospel. And so it gives us this wonderful connection, this wonderful uh, commitment that If you are a Christian, the New Testament has no category or place for you outside of your baptism. Because you are saved and then baptized. You are saved and then baptized. And your baptism commits you to this local body. Because they are testifying and saying, yes, we believe that although Ken was a reprobate, we believe the Lord has done a work in his heart and he has saved him. And we testify to what is transpiring up there. We are committing that he is a Christian. Amen? welcome, brother. (laughs) When we were in Prague and we would share the gospel with people, incredibly hard ground. and People described it as plowing concrete because nobody came to faith, right? Everybody's an atheist, less than one percent evangelical. So you enter these long conversations and relationships with people, having them in your house, letting them see the gospel, how it how it changes the way that I speak to my wife and how she speaks to me, how it changes the way we work in our community, how it changes the way our church operates and, and how it just alters and impacts everything about the way that we live. And what we found is that, that when men and women would come to faith, and they were so incredibly bold in their faith, but one of the things they were terrified to do was to be baptized. They were terrified to be baptized. They said, listen, listen, Nobody can tell that I'm a Christian because that's happened inside. But when I am baptized, my family will be disappointed, my friends won't understand, and I will be completely alienated from my circle of existence. Now, within our cultural realm of understanding living in the Bible Belt, if you get baptized on a Sunday and you tell your coworkers on a Monday, they're going to say, oh, man, I did that two or three times. How was it? It's just not a big deal. But for them, it so decidedly, decisively marked them as a Christian that it was this weighty thing to walk into. It was this weighty thing to experience. And indeed, it is a weighty thing to experience because baptism testifies to the remarkable change that God has affected in your heart. You were once dead, and now you're alive, and we're depicting that in the waters of baptism. Amen? Baptism is a one-time initiatory, right, symbolizing our sealing of our commitment with Christ and his church. But the Lord's Supper is essentially, to kind of take this same metaphor from Hammett, if baptism is a wedding, then the Lord's Supper is an anniversary where you renew your vows. Have you been to very many of these? Where couples get together and and they celebrate their 50th, and they come together and, and they begin to talk about all the wonderful things that the lord has done in their relationship all the various ways that he's moved and how much he loves her and 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 she says uh, how much uglier he's gotten over a period of time but she's still with him and she's okay with that uh, because no one else would have him and so they've described their their amazing love for one another and then they begin to renew their vows hold and cherish till death parts us and, and that's getting closer the older they get but it's this wonderful opportunity to rena- to renew their commitment one to another And that's what we do in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has this, oh, I I don't know how I would describe this, but just kind of this horrible reputation of just being this thing that makes services longer, right? I can remember being a kid, and I'd show up, and I'd see the plates down front, and I'm like, oh, oh, it's going to be longer today. I brought a snack because I can't eat that. <laughs> I clearly wasn't a Christian yet, right? I can actually remember one of the times we were at this, uh, we were at this church visiting with my parents, and, and for whatever reason, they passed around a, a loaf of bread at that church, which would be really gross now. I think your hands are germier than those were. Anyway, instead um, of so passing around this loaf of bread, and I just think surely my mom loves me and is going to get some because I've been complaining the entire time. She rips off this massive hunk, and it's just like, this is delicious. Can I have some? Sinner, no. (laughs) Wow, wow. I came to faith soon after that. The last snack I miss out on in church. Baptism has, baptism has this wonderful act of commitment. The Lord's Supper has this wonderful act of renewal. So let's think about renewal in terms of three words, okay? Spiritual, unifying, and hopeful. Spiritual, unifying, and hopeful. When we enter in and we take the Lord's Supper together, it has this wonderful act of spiritual renewal. We, we read this passage each time we take the supper together as a warning or an instruction to us. But in 1 Corinthians 11:27 through 29, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He goes on, he says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It is an opportunity to look inwardly at ourselves, to enter into this wonderful time of confession and repentance and just to give ourselves an opportunity to say, man, am I walking in faith with the Lord or am I walking in disobedience? And every time we take the Lord's Supper, there's this opportunity for any of us who walk through the door that we know that in this moment we are not ready to take the supper, right? Because there's, 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 there's some division. There's some sin in my life that I'm not yet ready to relinquish. There's something in my life that I'm not yet ready to let go. There's some bitterness there. There's some animosity towards another brother or sister. There's some some habitual sin that's held onto my heart. And I know in this moment I'm not ready to let go, that I'd rather live to this sin because I'm not yet ready to die to myself, to die to Christ. I want to continue in it. And the Lord's Supper is this wonderful reminder of that. This call to repentance, this call to inspection, and the hopeful, redemptive aspect of that is that we might be found in First John 1.9 9, that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I and mean, this is the wonderful God that we serve that we find ourselves enmeshed and and, and just stuck in our sins. We don't come to a God, declare our sins to him, confess our sins to him. He says, that's a real mess. You go clean that up. Instead, we come to a God who, when we confess our sins to him, the Bible tells us he makes us clean. He makes us whole. He makes us as if this sin had not occurred in the first place. Calls us to the idea of repentance calls us to reflect on his sacrifice. And there's an aspect of renewal in there. Again, in this passage in 1 Corinthians verses 23 through 25, Paul recounts Christ's uh, last supper with the disciples. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul says, listen, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember the fact that Jesus gathered with the disciples on the very night when Judas would betray him. And to those disciples, those disciples who in John 13, whose feet he had washed, he took out bread and and he took the bread and he broke it. And he extended it to them. And he says, this is my body, which is for you. Now in this moment for the disciples, this would have been curious, this would have been puzzling. But after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, they would have got it and said, he was giving us an indication that he would be broken for us. He continues, and he says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. That just as he held out the cup and he said, come and drink just as you come and ate, this is my blood. He invites us to remember his sacrifice. And it has this this wonderfully transformative effect on us in our hearts that when we remember that God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. When we take the Lord's Supper, it has this wonderfully remembrative effect. We gather around the table and, and, and we sit there, and it's quiet. And in the moments of quiet reflection, we have opportunity to reflect on the goodness of his sacrifice. What an amazing opportunity we have to sit there and reflect and to insert our names and just think in that moment, he has done this so that I might know him, so that I might be saved from my sins. His sacrifice really occurred. His death really occurred. He has risen from the grave, and he invites me to enjoy the benefits of his sacrifice. So it's not this thing that we do hastily. It's not this thing that unnecessarily adds to the length of our service. It's this wonderfully joyous gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ whereby we have opportunity to gather around his table and to remember his sacrifice. And as we gather around, it has the wonderful effect of renewing our unification. It blows my mind as, as uh, Jesse prayed earlier and as Justin alluded to in his prayer. We're not doing something unique here. We're not doing something alone here. That today believers gathered in China in fear of punishment, that today believers gathered in Indonesia in fear of punishment, that today believers gathered in South Sudan, that today believers gathered in Russia, that today believers gathered all over the continent of Europe in decreasing numbers. And that today we gather here and we join in the fellowship of the other churches of our community. That as we gather, we testify to the unifying effect of his word and of his blood and of his body. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17 says, For the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? She says, look, when we take this, we enjoy and we join into his blood. We enjoy and we join into his body. And then he goes on, he says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we take of the Lord's supper together, it is making us visibly one, because one body was given for the redemption of all sin at all times. And when we take of his supper together, it's reminding us of this reality, it's reminding us of the goodness of Jesus, and it is inviting us to enjoy its benefits. This is in some sense what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. He says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you are called, to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just a radically unifying effect. It reminds us of our brokenness and our sinfulness and we confess it because we want no part of it. We all gather around the table and we remember that we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are there with us. It brings us together. But occasionally in that moment as we are brought together, we remember that we've done something against so and so and, 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 and perhaps Christ's word comes to you in your mind in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter 5 verses 23 and 24 gives us this corrective. It says, so if you're offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus gives us this helpful corrective that, that we, it, it interrupts our relationship vertically with God when we have an interruption horizontally with our spouse or with our friend or with another brother and sister in christ it's so incredibly vitally necessary that we strive to be at peace with one another and can i just tell you that this is this is just a real bummer i got it's very difficult it's very difficult because what i find the more people i meet i find that they don't think that the way i do And and this might cause you rejoicing, but this causes me consternation and frustration. I'm just thinking, what is wrong with them? And they look back at me, they quietly smile, and they think, what is wrong with him? we have an opportunity to testify to the goodness of our lord jesus christ the unifying power of this gospel in as much as we move past the things that we harbor in resentment towards one another that past the things we harbor in resentment against other churches we continually have opportunity to demonstrate and to testify to god's goodness and to his unifying power and ability We're given this opportunity. We're given this depiction. And every time we enter into the Lord's Supper, we are saying this again. We are one. We are one. Remember that the Lord's Supper offers the idea of a hopeful renewal. A hopeful renewal. So often we find ourselves reflecting back upon the sacrifice of Christ. We're overcome with sadness. We're overcome with just this idea, this tinge of sadness, because we reflect upon his body that was broken. We reflect upon his blood that was poured out. But Paul calls us to remember and to focus on the fact that he is coming again. Paul says in verse 26 of chapter 11 in the book of First Corinthians, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What a hopeful thing. That in the midst of this event tinged with sadness and sorrow, we have opportunity to look to the future and say, my future is set, my future is secure, I will not be afraid. That although everything around me is decaying and breaking and and my life just seems a complete mess, I know that in the midst of this, my future is secure. That although my health will fade, although people will fail me and disappoint me around me, that institutions will rise and fall, that churches will rise and fall, but one thing rests true, he is coming again. He's coming again, and he calls us to remember this even in the midst of taking the supper, that as we gather around, our hope might be found in him, him who was sacrificed and him who is coming again. And that is what John testifies to in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. I don't know where you are today, Maybe you've come to church in, in search of answers. You've come to church to kill time. You've come to church for any other number of reasons for or for any other numbers of people. I hope you hear this truth, that God offers you the possibility of being set free from your sins through the blood of Jesus. And he has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen behold he is coming with the clouds behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen it Says, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord who was and is and is to come the Almighty God calls us to recognize who he is in the midst of taking the supper He calls us to reflect upon his goodness that he has not left us here wandering in the wasteland, but he has left us here waiting for his return. Waiting for his return. Jesus has really two interactions with baptism. Think on this as we conclude. He has really two interactions with with baptism. One is at the very start of his ministry and one at the very end of his ministry. Now, the one at the end of his ministry is the one that we are most familiar with, that we say and quote and, and have children memorize, and it's uh, in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and go there for making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives to the church this commission to go making disciples and baptizing them but at the beginning of Christ's ministry he has this uh, somewhat interesting interaction with the gospel, with uh, with John the Baptist and, and it really creates some interesting questions for us now if you read through the synoptic gospels Matthew Mark and Luke you'll see that John is out there and he's baptizing for the repentance of sins and so effectively you come along and and you say, oh, I'm, I'm an alcoholic or I've got this obsession or I've got this, this, this thing that is keeping me from God. And so you go out there to John and you say, I no longer want to be like this anymore. I want to make a decisive break with this former manner of existence, with this former way that I lived. And I want to commemorate this decision. I want it to be known. I want it to be public. I want people to see it. I want people to hear about it so they will know that Matt is no longer this way. And so John takes them out there and and they confess their sins. They are baptized and they come up and the presumption is that they would not continue in that manner of existence. So then Jesus shows up and Jesus walks towards John and, and John says, Whoa, 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 whoa. I can't baptize you. I've just said this whole thing about not being even worthy to touch your sandals and now here you want me to baptize you? I I can't. If anybody, you need to baptize me. Jesus gives him these words out of Matthew chapter three. He says, but this is fitting, but this is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus goes down to the water with John the Baptist and in submission, To the will of God, he is baptized, and in that moment, he enters into the predicament, the plight, and the struggle that you and I live out each day, the struggle against sin. In those waters, in Jordan, he becomes for us our representative, that although he would wrestle against sin, he would be victorious so that you and I might join in his victory. Coming up out of the water, the heavens part. The Spirit of God descends as a dove, and we hear, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus goes off into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And at the end of his 40 days, emerging from the wilderness in glorious victory, he comes forward, and he declares this in Mark 1 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel him who has identified with the sinner, who has become our representative, who would live on to defeat sin and death in the cross of Calvary, invites us to come, invites us to know him, invites us to be saved by his blood, to commit to him in the act of baptism, and to renew our commitment in repeatedly taking the supper together. This is how we will be known by him and be his disciples in our commitment and in our renewal of that commitment. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. I thank you that you have given us these two ordinances so that we might be able to commit publicly, to display publicly, this thing that you have done within our hearts. Father, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to baptism. They know you, they testify to your goodness, but they've not yet come to be baptized, that you would lead them in obedience to come forward and to be baptized. And Father, I pray for those in this hearing they don't know you, And they're a good and wonderful person, and nobody would say anything otherwise. But they're living for themselves and living in their own goodness, that you would remind them that you came even to save the good. For the good is far from you. And Father, I pray for all those who need to respond to your gospel, who need a touch from you. pray for the believer today who just needs encouragement in you. They don't particularly feel close to anybody. They don't feel like they are one. They feel like they are outcasts. They feel like they've been cast off. So God, would you remind them that they are one, that they are a part of your body? God, would you lead them to a local body? Be here at Ridgecrest or some other church where they might use their giftings for your glory. Father, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.